Somebody asked me if, if I had chosen that reading in light of the current circumstances in America. <laughs> yep. Uh, first of all, thanks to Pastor Chad uh, for allowing me the privilege of speaking today. Thanks to the elders as well. Uh, it's a privilege to uh, speak from the pulpit, to lead you in a short time of study of God's Word this morning. May God bless this time together. Amen. If you look at the current political climate and the things that have been going on, uh, with COVID-19, the elections, the controversies. How would you summarize the year? Let me put it another way. If you were keeping a personal journal for 2020, at the end of the year, what would you write down as the title for this year? You know, last year you might have written a different title and the year before, and this year, what title would you put? Or if you were making a movie about 2020, what's the title of the movie going to be? I, I, would you call it 2020, the year of the coronavirus? Or would you call it 2020, ugh. <laughs> 2020, the year we'd like to forget about. Or would you, uh, in light of all of the controversy, would you put 2020, controversial, adversarial, difficult, weird, and tough. And so many, so many things going on, but maybe you would put this. The year in which we learned that we really, really, really need to be on our knees praying for our country, for our people, for our faith, for one another. Amen? If you go back and take a look at the reading from this morning where it said, if my people who are called by my name do what? Humble themselves and do what else? And pray and do what else? And seek my face and do what else? And turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Would you pray with me? And then we'll take a look at God's word for this morning. Lord, we do ask in all humility, recognize that we do not deserve your favor. We still ask that you would please reign sovereign over us, over our church, and over our country. Father, we ask that you would let your mercy and your grace abound. We don't deserve your blessings, but we're desperately in need of your presence here and now. Hear our land. Remove the discontent and the discouragement. Remove the dissension and the strife. And treat us, Father, we pray, according to your gracious kindness and your everlasting love, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Just as we might label our diaries or our journal entries to summarize a year or a month or maybe even a week, 
as part of our Bible study methodology, we learn that putting a label on something helps. So if you've studied a passage and you know that you're going to have to put a title on the top of it, it forces you to go back and reread the passage and think about it, not just read it, read it and blow through it, but to think about it, to consider the entire context within which that passage is written, and then sum up what it's really all about. So if you were reading Hezekiah chapter 12, and, and you read through it, and you're not sure you got anything out of it, you'd go back and look at it and reread it and scan it again, and then at the top of it, put a little box and say, the title of this should be such and such. Here's an example, and before we get to Exodus, I want you to think of two different examples of that titling technique. Look at Luke chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Most of you know what Luke chapter 1 and the beginning of Luke chapter 2 is. What's it about? Yeah, the birth of Jesus. It's like the Christmas story. So look back at Luke chapter 1 real quick, and it says... Verse 1, many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that had been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. Difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible is usually a pencil. So take a pencil when you're looking at Luke chapter 1 and underline this in the first verse, the things that have been fulfilled. The beginning of the chapter is really important because it's setting the pace for the rest of the entire chapter. When you're looking at that, you go, oh, it's talking about things that have been fulfilled. What's that talking about? And it should pique your interest a little bit. And you say, well, in the, in the beginning of Luke, here we're going to have the birth of Jesus, the story about the Christ child and all the good stuff about the shepherds and everything. But it has to do with things having been fulfilled. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 20 skip way down, and it says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Everything was what? Just as they had been told. You link those two things together and you say, look, this is encapsulating the first section of this entire phenomenal, great, meaningful gospel by trying to let us understand it had been foretold and it happened as it had been foretold. This is the Christmas story. It's full of all these fantastic characters. It starts out with Herod and Luke, chapter 1. It goes from Herod to Zechariah to Elizabeth to Gabriel to Mary to Joseph, the shepherds, the angels, and the Holy Spirit. You've got all of this incredible information packed into this little short passage. But don't get lost in the weeds What's the title? Well, a lot of us title it The Birth of Jesus or The Christmas Story. But if you take into account the fact that it started that section and ended that section with something about prophecy, my title for it would be The Christmas Story, comma, Prophecies and Promises Fulfilled. Amen? And so when you're doing your Bible studies, make yourself think back. What is it all about? What's the, what's the story? What's the first book of the Bible? Genesis. 
And what's it about? Beginnings. We all know that. And so when you're teaching your children about the book of Genesis, what do you tell them Genesis is about? Well, you've got to look at the context. You've got to look at the whole book. You've got to look at the first chapter. Oh, it's the book of Genesis. It's about beginnings. It's about the creation story. No, it's not. It's got the creation story in it. Where? Right at the very beginning. But what are 47 out of the 50 chapters about? If you're going to title the book of Genesis, you might not call it the book of beginnings. You might call it something else. You might add on to beginnings of what? Because the 47 chapters are about who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the people of God. And the book is about the people of God, God's chosen people, and God's interactions with his people. It's about how the people of God acted and reacted and didn't act like they should have and did act like they should have sometimes. It's talking about God who? Which God? What's, what's the important part that you learn about God in the book of Genesis? He's the God of the covenant promises. Amen? And you, and you put a title on there, Genesis, God's covenantal relationship with his people. And you go, yeah, okay, now we're starting to synthesize all that good information. Chad's preaching now. The reason I bring both of those examples up is Chad's been preaching now on a series going through the book of Exodus. What does Exodus mean? What's the title of Exodus? Well, you know, Exodus, what's it mean? It means leaving. It means exit, going out. It could also be called hegira, which is a term that wasn't used back then when they were titling things. But what's a hegira? It's an escape from something bad. It's an escape from a bad living condition, bad situation, going towards something better. The book of Exodus, what are we learning about? What are we seeing? What are, what's being revealed about mankind? What's being revealed about God in the book of Exodus? And, and here's a key to your Bible study methodology. Don't jump to an application. Don't be reading it saying, I wonder what this means for me. How am I supposed to live tomorrow? Don't, don't jump ahead of the text. Study the text. Do your observation. Pastor Chad and I fervently hope this. We, we hope that all of us will be serious students of the Bible. Amen? We want to be people of the book who search in here for truth. Who understand that this is God's revelation to mankind. It's his inerrant, inspired, infallible word that he has given us that we might become the people that he intends for us to become. That he might be glorified. Summarize for yourselves as serious scholars. What's Exodus about so far? So far, what's it about? What have you seen in the book of Exodus? What, what descriptive terms would you use to define what you've learned in, in all of this series that Chad's been preaching. The Jews, the Jews labeled the book, it's kind of funny, they, they labeled the book, their title for it is an Exodus. Our title, Exodus, 
comes from the Latin word in the Septuagint, that basic, in the Latin translation of the Bible, that means exit. <laughs> That's pretty simple. But the Jews didn't call it exit. What do they call it, do you remember? They call it shemoth, S-H-E-M-O-T-H, in Hebrew, which is totally weird, because shemoth means names, quote, names. That's a crazy name for a book of the Bible, names. And the reason they call it that is because in Genesis chapter 46, verse 8, there's a link that goes to Exodus. And the link is that there it proclaims the names of all of the Jews that exited. So they just call it names because they place a high value on the lineage and the understanding of those were our forebears and that's who was there and that's who left and that's who was allowed to exit out of Egypt. But for us, what is it? What's Exodus so far? Exodus is the continuing story of God fulfilling his promise to Israel when? Back in Genesis. He's affirming his power and his might and his providence and the faithful deliverance of his people out of slavery. Why? Because he promised them the land. Remember? Goes back to our title for the book of Genesis. God and his covenantal relationship with his people. Two weeks ago, Chad titled his sermon, Behold the Power of God, comma, God versus Pharaoh. Last week, Chad titled his sermon, The Passover. And I hope, I hope you think about what the pastors are labeling their sermons, because sometimes that's how they've distilled the essence of what the passage is going to be about. He called it the Passover, and he spoke about the unblemished lamb being sacrificed by the chosen people and the ordinance that was established for the Jews in order that they would do what? That they would remember, that they would never forget how he had spared them and delivered them. So we pick up the thread today in this short little vignette from Exodus chapter 13 beginning with verse 17. It says this, it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Ask yourself a simple question. Why does it tell us what God didn't do. It's kind of a curious little phrase. It says, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. And you go, why in the world is that in there? What's the point? And the point is this. There were a couple of different ways that you could get out of Egypt and get back to Canaan land, back to the promised land. There were a couple of different ways you could take. If you want to go from Charlotte to Waxhaw, you can go straight down Providence Road, right? That's kind of similar to them saying, we're going to go straight to Canaan by way of Philistia, by the, way, by the way of the people of the Philistines, straight down the road. It's the quickest, shortest route. It says God didn't let them go that way. Instead, he sent them another way, gave them direct guidance to go a different way that was longer and slower. And he says, basically, why? B 
because he knew them well. He knew their tendencies. He knew their mindset. He knew that going the shortest way wasn't the right way for them because sometimes when the going gets tough, the tough go in the wrong direction. They would have had to engage in warfare along the way. And to engage in warfare, they'd have gotten clobbered. Why? It says that they were prepared. It says in verse 18, the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Well, the real better translation for that says they were bearing arms. Some of them had arms. But where'd they been? They'd been in captivity. They'd been in slavery for how long? Just a couple of years? 430 years, generation after generation after generation after generation, 430 years. We can't think back 430 years in America and go, well, where were my ancestors? But they could. And they hadn't been prepared for battle. They weren't battle-ready, battle-hardened, used to fighting. They were used to being slaves. They were used to being oppressed. And even though they carried some weapons with them, they weren't ready to do battle with the Philistines. The Philistines would have clobbered them. And God knew that if that happened, they would have a tendency to say, let's just go back to Egypt. It was easier there. It was awful, but it was easier. At least we won't get killed there. And that wasn't part of his plan for his people. It said, God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. They understood persecution, they understood oppression, they understood all the bad news back in Egypt, and they might have wanted to go back anyway. And then it says this curious little passage says, Moses took the bones of Joseph, Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And you go, what in the world is that little parenthetical sentence in there for? What's the deal? If you stop and think about it, Joseph had accurately anticipated almost 400 years earlier, about 360 years or so earlier, Joseph had anticipated that God would deliver on his promises to the covenantal people. And Joseph said, promise me, before he died, promise me you'll take my bones back to the promised land. It was a really poignant little piece of information. He's saying, I know that I can trust God to deliver. And it may not be for a long time, but when you do get there, carry my bones back to where I belong. In Hebrews chapter 11, remember Hebrews 11, the, the hero's hall of faith. It says, by faith Joseph at the end of his life mentioned the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave instructions about his burial. He said, when the time comes, take me with you back to Canaan. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 15, it says, so Jacob went down to Egypt and died there along with our ancestors. 
and their bones were later moved to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a certain sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. That's kind of cool. It means now we have seen that promise delivered. After 40 years of wandering in the world, can you imagine carrying, can you imagine carrying somebody's bones around with you for 40 years in the wilderness? Oh man, whose turn is it to carry Joseph today? I'm not carrying him, I'm tired of carrying him. I've been carrying him for five years. Let's, let's elect some new deacons. <laughs> Seriously, it's a pain in the neck to carry somebody's bones around with them. But what does it do? It's a constant reminder of who their ancestors were. And it's a constant reminder for 40 years in the wilderness of what? God's going to deliver. And while our faith might be a little weak, we might not be so sure that God's going to deliver on his promise Joseph was. And we're headed there. We're going to get there. We're on the way. Some historians tell us that on the way back, they stopped off and picked up some Jews that were working at the mines. They were slaves working in the mines. It says in Exodus 13, verse 20, and they moved from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Well, historians say, they think maybe they stopped there to pick up some other Jewish people that were working in the mines. Other historians say Sukkoth isn't the name of a place. And there's no definitive answer because Sukkoth, we also know, refers to the booths. Remember the festival of the booths? And Sukkoth was a Hebrew word that meant booth or tent, like a little temporary dwelling place. And, and we think maybe it means that they moved on from the place where they initially camped on their first day's travel. They set up these little tents and they camped out and then they folded up all the tents. Now, I don't know about you, but ten, enough tents for 1.2 million people, that's a lot of tents. And I doubt that they carried that much stuff with them. When they left, they left in a hurry. Because you remember the deal about the unleavened bread and let's go in a hurry. But either way, we just know that there are a whole lot of them and they were headed southeast back towards the promised land and that God himself was leading them. So the next fun question is, how did he lead them? This passage tells us how. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. I don't know about you, but I think about this and I go, first of all, I don't know what a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire look like, except it must look like something very, very visible up in the sky that everybody can see for miles around because it was very clearly obvious and it was very clearly the, the way that God chose to do what? Not just lead them. I think God was evident to them by the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, they understood that he was present with them, that he was providing for them, that he was protecting them. In other passages we see that the pillar of cloud 
was protective. In the Psalms, it talks about the pillar of cloud being a protective canopy that gave them shade during the day. Had to be a big cloud. I don't know about you. Charlotte doesn't have 1.2 million. Just imagine one cloud sitting on top of Charlotte. Had to be a great big cloud. And then you go, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't rain fall through the clouds? And you go, nope, not here. It says they were protected from the rain, protected from the elements, protected from the sun, not in this passage. But it, it lets us know that that was a protective device for their benefit. They knew about a pillar of fire. They didn't know about a pillar of fire. They knew about fire. How did they know about fire in God's presence? They knew the story of Moses and the burning bush. They knew that God had spoken to Moses and the bush wasn't consumed. And so they knew some of these things that God sometimes reveals himself. Most of all, they were constantly being reassured throughout history and here in their Exodus journey of the presence and the protection of their covenantal God who provides for the people whom he loves. So what? Great Old Testament story. Interesting Old Testament story. Interesting to think about the journey. What must it have been like? Can you imagine taking everybody in the city of Charlotte and moving to Wisconsin? <laughs> Just all at the same time, walking. Maybe moving to Florida in the winter. I, it's this mass movement. What would it take to inspire you every day to keep walking? What would it take to inspire you to travel with the same group? The Old Testament is not supposed to be just a bunch of history lessons for us especially history lessons about a strange people doing a strange thing at a strange time, speaking a strange language, uh, and it, so we study the history. It's not an old, dry, dusty history book. The Old Testament serves as a path for us to understand the character of God better and to understand the character of man and the tendencies of mankind. And what we learn in the Old Testament especially in the book of Exodus and other books, we learn about God's forbearance. Forbearance, that's a Christianese word, forbearance. How many of you have ever said the word forbearance in the last year, forbearance? Well, it's a Christianese word, what does it mean? Incredible patience. We learn in the Old Testament about God's incredible patience with, a, he puts up with a lot, amen? If you were God looking at America and the squabbling that's going on and the problems that we're having and the, the internecine warfare going on in the United States of America, wouldn't you be inclined to say, hey, have you Americans looked around at the nations in Africa that are suffering badly with no money, no food, no clean water, and you're fighting about different stuff, wouldn't you as God be inclined to say, wake up and smell the coffee, you live in a wonderful place. You've been blessed beyond measure. 
wouldn't you be inclined to say, don't you appreciate what you have? But it says, fortunately for us, throughout the Old Testament, that God is a God of great patience and great mercy and great kindness, a God of everlasting perfect love. God loves you perfectly. And God offers you the shalom, shalom. You know the Hebrew word shalom for peace? Well, shalom, shalom, the perfect peace of God is offered. We haven't seen pillars of fire or a pillar of clouds. I wish we had during the elections. <laughs> it would have made it a lot easier to vote, wouldn't it? Hey, there's a pillar of cloud, and the pillar, is, the pillar of cloud is tinted. Pick your color, red or blue. Okay, this side. Red for you, blue for you. The pillar of cloud shows us God's preference for who to vote for. I'd love for that to have happened, although I'm afraid we wouldn't have all voted that way anyway, even if we had the pillar. But, you know, it's, it's one of these things where I'm kind of jealous the Jews had clear directions with this pillar leading them. And yet they were still stubborn. They still whined and complained. They got the manna from heaven while they're wandering in the desert, and they didn't like the manna, they got tired of it. They wanted food, they got manna. They didn't like the manna, so they got quail. They got sick of quail. The point is that God's providence and God's protection and God's provision for his people were evident in the book of Exodus as they left a really bad situation. What do we have? No pillars. But we have the promises of the Holy Spirit to be with us. We have the book to guide us and direct us. We have the fellowship and the ministry of the local vibrant church, the body of believers. We don't have the 1.2 million people traveling all together following the pillar of cloud but we've got massive amounts of true believers who are followers of Jesus Christ, who live and work and worship as those who want to honor God. We have stability and peace in life because our confidence is placed in God's steadfast love our confidence is placed in his immutable nature. He doesn't change. Our confidence is not in the government. Our confidence is in the one holy, omnipotent, infallible, triune God who is almighty and who is sovereign. Amen? Where's your confidence? You know, this election mess can go on forever. But we have to come back to the fact that we're confident in the almighty sovereign God. Is he still sovereign? Yep. May we remember who he is. May we enjoy the peace that we have as we rely upon his character as it was revealed thousands of years ago and hundreds of years ago.
may we understand our God is still in control and he hasn't changed and he hasn't moved. May we appreciate the spiritual connection that we have with him and the guidance and direction that he gives us continually and the blessings that he's given us. Amen? Pray with me and we'll sing some songs and close our worship service. Lord, you've blessed us by the sure knowledge that you are present with your people, by the sure knowledge that you do the things that you said you were going to do, that you execute your promises. We're blessed by your church, by fellow believers. We're blessed by the ministry that you've called each one of us to as ambassadors for Christ. You've taught us to love one another and to love you. May we do it well. In Christ's name, amen.